We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hotspur on the brink of announcing the next person who will be blamed for a trophyless season filled with misery and disappointment. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Bachman Twitter Yankee Gunner. Uh, that's right, Tottenham Hotspur about to have a new manager. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and uh, you know, I am learning that people really uh, feel an affinity for this person. Um, a lot of our Australian listeners quite sad that he's going there. Um, some Celtic supporters who also support Arsenal quite sad that he's going there. All I can say is, you've got to pivot to ridicule. You have to find a way to do it. It is your responsibility. Uh, we will talk a little bit about that person and what that person is walking into. I would say a buzzsaw. We'll talk a little bit about transfer news. There, There is some news, a lot of it, revolving around Brighton. Brighton are basically like the Walmart this summer. They they got they got all the stuff and every, everybody's shopping there. <laughs> like, I guess they're not Walmart, though, because like all the stuff is is really good and high-end. What, what, would, what would be a high-end Gucci. store? Gucci. <laughs> Yeah, but nobody can shop at Gucci. <laughs> Who can afford to shop? That's a, well, nobody, Yeah, can. that's a good point. No one can afford to shop at Brighton either. Um, and, and prices may be going up at this store, you know, inflation and all that. Um, did a patron podcast yesterday covering the Tierney price slash value. What is Kieran Tierney worth? Maybe we can get stuck into a bit of that today. We're also going to revisit our predictions from uh, predictions from last summer and and see how they came in comparison to what we achieved so we can look back on that and smile at how we overachieved and all that so uh, lots to cover let's start with the fa cup though um and in order to do that i will have to introduce the people who are going to appear on the podcast it's a hugely important part of the professional job that i do every day on the arsenal vision post-match podcast and here with me now is clive you can find him on twitter at clive pfc hello clive hello hello how was your birthday you had fun yeah all right a steady weekend nice dinner friday and uh yeah, I didn't go out. I didn't go out massively. Just walk in and spend time with the family. That obviously had the mm. weekend the weekend before, right? So I was, I was going to say you needed me in the country. I could have solved yeah, that and give you a heavy weekend. Uh, there. It was very nice to sort of just chill, which I did, and the weather was cool. And so uh, yeah, mm. really good, really good. Sounds lovely. I went to a three-year-old's dance recital. Let me tell you, that's the thing you want to do as much as possible. As much, it's really just a lot of 
jumping around while music plays, but it's sweet and they love it. So, you know, that's what it's all about. Uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo. Um, Elliot, I have a bone to pick with you. You said Unusual. you'd met Clive's wife, mm. uh, wh- who was in fact better than decent. And mm. I've got to tell you, I think that's because you don't fully, being an American, understand what decent means. We're going to do this like, again? Yeah. <laughs> decent's like great. Like, in in what language? In English. Okay. Okay. And I think it's because it was a little rivalry broke out. You've always had the thing, oh, Paul's tall, but I've got the guns. I got yeah. the gun show. And yeah. then we met Wendy, Clive's mm. wife. Mm. And that's what guns look like. Yeah. She, yeah. She's both tall and has pipes. So it's like, <laughs> you know, what do I do? With, what do I do in that situation? The thing you have yeah, to understand, so, Paul, is when, yeah. when you look like I do, you have, you have sort of experienced humiliation on many dimensions. So mm-hmm. it's like, I'm really beyond being uh, humiliated or belittled at this point. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> well, let's keep trying. Let's keep trying. <laughs> there are um, more dimensions. There, there are yeah, more dimensions to explore. That was one. Well, well, one of the dimensions we're going to explore in my preseason predictions later on. So that'll be another dimension of humiliation. <laughs> uh, why, why we do predictions and then write them down, I will never know. Um, okay, let's start with Ange Postacoglu really quickly. Um, Clive, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on the new Tottenham Hotspur manager, but I have been surprised at the sort of depression that has sunk in for some people over this announcement. There are people that seem to really like him. People whose football opinions I respect suggest that he is a very, very good manager. Um, He was coming from Celtic, whose playing style sort of looked a little bit like Arteta's Arsenal or Deserby's Brighton or Pep's City. At least that's what's widely reported. Not a particularly good record in the Champions League this season, although I am told, having not watched the games, that the performances were better than the results. I just think he's running into a buzzsaw at Tottenham. I really do. And not just because it's the history of the Tottenham, because I think they're in chaos. They don't have a director of football. They don't have a a squad, really. Certainly not one built to play the football he apparently likes. So thoughts on this appointment and the possibility that he can do anything other than get sucked into the morass that exists in that toilet bowl? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to see anyone succeeding there at this present moment in time without massive support, a strong backroom, strong um, hierarchy in the boardroom, and to have full carte blanche to do what you need to do. You know, and, um, and so I think if you look at the guy on his own personality, he's he's a really good guy. You can't help but like him. You, we, we only get exposed to press conferences and. He seems like a really good, you know, emotional intelligence man, manager type coach that can really connect with people, connect with fans, bring people together, and there's nothing wrong with that. We, you know, we've we've seen some benefits of that, but where we are seeing some benefits of is upward management, and Arteta's been able to upward manage into the boardroom and into the ownership and really create an aligned project. I haven't seen an aligned project at Spurs since Daniel Levy came in. You know, and the best alignment they had was with Poch until Levy decided he didn't want to be aligned anymore. Went a different direction. And and funny enough, that's the best period they had under Daniel Levy, like for three, four, five years. And um when they usurped us in the league. So they haven't worked out what success looks like and maybe they're gonna go back to it. Very difficult to judge a manager that's come from Australia, which I have no recollection of really. Went to Celtic. I'm not the best person because I have leanings towards the other side of Glasgow, and so I'm not. I never looked at him with any sort of fond eyes. Um, but you can't help but see that he understood the Asian market. 
he understood that really well. He brought in some quality players into Scotland that are going to use it as a gateway to get to into England, no doubt. Some of those players are very, very good. They were you know, far too good for Scotland and they had the best team by a street. And he kept them motivated really, really well in a league where it's very difficult to keep people motivated where you're more likely going to win it. And so I think he's done a fantastic job for Celtic and in some ways I wish he would, for him, I'd like him to stay for one more year, but totally understand it when you've been offered life-changing money, come to England. It just only makes sense for him to give it a go, right? You can only, even if it goes wrong, He's going to get another job, you know, in the championship or in the in lower down in the Premier League. So it's a gateway. He has to take it, you know. He has to take it, and so yeah, to be judged, and um, we'll be interesting. Um, but it's, I do agree with you, Elliot. He's a very he's likable, and now we have to not like him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to I work mean, at it. <laughs> sorry, that's the job to do your job, um, Paul. I, I I think the the real issue with this is ultimately, I, look, I've changed my mind a lot on how I think about some of these managers being able to succeed in certain places. I really thought Graham Potter was an excellent coach, and I think I still believe that Graham Potter is an excellent coach, but Graham Potter stepped up in terms of the size of club he was at, the dynamics behind the scene at the club he was moving to, the, the type of squad he was inheriting, and all those things ate him alive. Uh, his football didn't work with that group. They didn't want to play that way. There were egos. There were there were backroom issues. It was just chaos. And and then when you add the microscope that's pointed at these big clubs in the Premier League, it can be very very difficult. And Postecoglou, uh, you know, as much as people say he's great, he's got the personality for it. He's turned every club around, turning every club around in the Australian League or the J League or the SPL is very, very different from coming to the Premier League at 57 years old to one of the <coughs> bigger clubs in the league, he says through gritted teeth. And like, you know, Neil Lennon and Steven Gerrard won titles in the SPL. Now, I, I do not dispute that the type of football he seems to play and his tactical news uh, seems to be top. But like, no Kane, Son is done, Kulishevsky's not staying. The team has mostly been built to play suffer ball right? Compact to the back, kick it long to the front. And then no idea what the director of football situation is going to be. And I, you know, I said, I said this on the patron pod yesterday, but I think it bears repeating this. He could do fine, actually pretty well, pretty, pretty well and finish seventh and get sacked. Right. I mean, you could, you could do a half decent job there next season and finish seventh and get sacked. So I just feel like he's running into a buzzsaw, or at least I hope so, because I think it would make a lot of people happy if he wasn't there very long and moved on to a new job, because I think people who liked him would be happy. People who think he's very good would be happy he's not there, and they could move on to the next thing. Um, it's interesting in a way, because I definitely think they needed to move away from this big-name coach who thinks they're bigger than that club and just sh shits on them in public, as fun as it is. Um, but I think the timing right now is such that a manager making this step up with the ideas he have could could get eaten alive by the situation there. Sure, but they may once again have picked a manager who's too big for this club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't available, so yeah. you know. So, uh, like they came eighth, didn't they? So they're not in Europe. So he has that going from. Mm -hmm. uh, they can dink around a little bit, uh, kind of find their best thirteen and try and play that all season kind of thing, get a, get a couple of hires. 
Um, he, he has the tough spot that um, he's picking up a squad that's been through <laughs> some interesting managers in recently time. In recent time, uh, I, I'm not sure they pushed the boat out for Nuno in the market, but they did for Conti, they did for Jose Mourinho. Um, and you'd think after a few years of going the merry-go-round in the transfer market and you look at the names in place, it's a very screwed-up distribution uh, mix of players, ages. It's kind of all over the place. People who came in on on a promise to play and then weren't used, and then suddenly this guy shows up and he's like, "I'm going to give everybody a a chance to play," as each manager does. I'm going. Everybody has a clean sheet and stuff, but there are no clean sheets. They all have their luggage, their baggage, their uh, their carry-ons, their personal items that they bring into this, and so. Uh, it's going to be a really tough job for anybody. The one thing he has going for him is he can settle into focusing on the league and trying to get a rhythm going there. Um, there's a really good chance that he does okay or average, and it kind of ticks along, and it's nothing to write home about, which is probably okay. Um, and I think Levy doesn't know... He, 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 he doesn't know which way to go at this point. He's gone with the big names, and suddenly it's a, you know, I guess he took Nuno along the way as a peace offering. Uh, and this guy's another kind of peace offering, lower expectations, try, try, and work, try and work on their homework over here in the corner without anybody paying too much attention, take the heat off. Um, they could have a fairly mediocre season. And, like, I don't know much about Pasta I don't watch the Scottish League. Um, I hear he could. Let's assume he's pretty good. Mm. Uh, Graham Potter was very good, mm-hmm. uh, but he came into a situation that was maybe beyond him. But mostly chaos, confusion, uh, dysfunction. A club that was well, well beyond him or almost anybody. Um, yeah. And there's a bit of that here. So uh, hopefully we get that. I actually just watched a quick clip of the Battle of the Bridge, which was a lot of fun. Mm. And so we're talking about Chelsea and Spurs. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's nice to see those clubs in deep, deep pain. And hopefully we see a bit more of it this season. <laughs> yeah, well said. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, we don't need to spend more time on their manager. We'll have plenty of time to talk about how he's failing next season. And as I said, I'm sure there are people that really, really like this guy and, you know, think – think he's talented, think he's a good guy, think he has what it takes. All I can say is the fact that you're listening to this pod suggests that you need to find a way to to change tack on, on that perception. You know, it is interesting. It made me rethink Mikel a little bit. And the only thing I'll say about Mikel is, you know, they say that Postacoglu plays similar football to like what Mikel does. Well, Mikel didn't, didn't implement this football for quite a few seasons when he first arrived. And I think he sort of rightly recognized that if I try to play positional football with these loafers with a low technical level, I'm going to get brutalized. So I can't do it yet. I got to reshape the squad. And I'll be curious to see if Postacoglu looks at the squad he has at Spurs and and says, okay, I can't play my football. I might need a plan B until I can reshape the squad. It'd be interesting to see because at the SPL, when you're Celtic, your talent's always the best in the league. Right. And so, you know, it, it, it's just going to depend and, and, and we'll see, but I, I hope he fails miserably, obviously. Clive, I have to admit, I don't know what I think about the FA Cup. 
I kind of think the FA Cup is one of those things that if you win it, it is a massive thing. And if you don't win it and not in the final, it's kind of meh. What I mean by that is no big club should go into the season with their goal being win the FA Cup. Winning the FA Cup is brilliant. But if you're a big club, your goal is going into the season, win the league. And if you're in it, win the Champions League, right? And everything else is sort of subordinated to that. But I got to admit, the FA Cup final is a glorious spectacle. It really is a special day, and you can't help but admire it from afar when it does go on. And for me, not the best of games, but the outcome I was hoping for. Um, it, it, I, it's never a case of rooting for Manchester City. I was rooting for not United. Um, were you rooting for not United? And do you have any thoughts on them not winning the FA Cup, thankfully? Oh, yes. I was rooting for Man City with Verva <laughs> and then found <laughs> okay, it go. very disconcerting <laughs> that... For the whole season, I've been rooting against Man City. The one time I wanted to root for them, they found it difficult to win a game of football. When all when we're rooting against them, they seem to find it very easy to win a game of football. So that mm-hmm. was a that was a, a mental challenge. I uh, Man United, you know, I, I didn't want this. Who had a better season, Man United or Arsenal? Discussion to permeate if Man United had won. They would have over celebrated by stopping City doing the treble. So yeah. The right result. Um, the game was okay. Um, City, I think, I, I think they did it jogging, to be honest with you. Manchester mm. United were bringing on Valt Veghorst late on, which tells you they've got work to do in their transfer squad rebuilding in the summer. They haven't got enough players. Rashford ended up limping again. Let's see if he joins the England squad. He's someone on the edge of an injury for seems quite a while now because he was overplayed during their purple patch period. And so, yeah, it's, they've got work to do, Manchester United, and I'm glad. And it's going to be so interesting to see what happens with them and their ownership and how their funds are released to spend. You know, let's see that, that situation, see what really, really happens. I think the best the best discussion that came out of it for me and was the penalty. You know, I, I thought the penalty discussion and penalties full stop is a discussion. They have a real massive influence on the game of football. Give, the giving of penalties, penalty competitions. When you're going for the playoffs, how many people's league de- leagues have been decided by penalties? I, you know, as part of my research for the summer and for next season, I started to watch old games over the weekend. I watched the World Cup final. I mean, what an unbelievable game that is to watch! I urge you, if you get a chance. I mean, I, I saw it in a pub, right? So I didn't really, I didn't really watch it as closely as I did yesterday. What a game of football! Even rewatching it, it grabbed you. But again, back to penalties to conclude it. You know, um, obviously, see Luton go up into the into the Premier League. Back to penalties. You'll see an FA Cup game where Manchester United are getting slapped. A cross goes to the back post. A guy's twisting in the air, hit his hand. A penalty. A high percentage shot. A free shot. I don't know. I don't know. This whole concept of penalties in a low scoring sport is something that's on my mind. I was talking to people over the weekend. They were come. They were coming back at me with these people thinking about rule change, thinking about improving the game, thinking about the yeah. value of these decisions, thinking about how referees arrive here based on the rules that are in front of them. I think that was the most interesting thing that came out of a game where you, I saw White City to win and they did. And I, I'm in that mindset at the moment, Elliot, about improving the game and improving discipline on the sideline, improving the, the opportunities to win a game in open play. Um, so yeah, that was the most interesting thing that came out of it for me. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think when you look at the ugly scenes, well, let's come to the ugly scenes in um, in Rome in just a little bit. 
Uh, I guess not in Rome, Budapest, right? The scenes were in Budapest, I guess. Um, Correct. Yeah, from Roma. Yeah. Um, so, right, for Roma, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to stand this for a second. I mean, Paul, the funny thing is, one of the reasons I was a big believer in VAR is that I felt VAR helps referees in the sense that they can take a beat, they can maybe make fewer calls, because I actually think fewer calls is the better outcome in football, not more calls. And then VAR can step in if they've missed something obvious. Um, now, I don't mean fewer like yellow cards and stuff like that. You have to control the game. But I mean like call fewer penalties because more penalties is worse in my view. And then if VAR sees something that's so blatant that it has to be called, it can come back in. And I thought what it would do is it would take the spotlight off of referees in that respect because they're making fewer calls. And if there's something obvious that all the world can see, they don't wind up being embarrassed on global television because VAR comes back and fix it. And and unfortunately, at least in the Premier League, VAR has not done that. Now, I have seen VAR be pretty good in things like the Champions League and the World Cup, so I know it's possible. But, you know, this, this is the crux of it for me. A penalty is an 80% goal in a sport that is often decided by one goal. You make that call, you are probably changing the outcome of the game. In, I'd be curious, I'd love someone to run the stats on this. What percentage of the game, when a penalty is given, does that scored penalty result in the outcome of the game? In other words, you know what I mean? Like, like what percentage of the time does a given penalty change the outcome of the game? In other words, decide who wins or, or, or draws. Because I bet it's pretty high. So you are essentially making a call that says, this is going to result in the outcome of the game being different. Now, that's not to say there shouldn't be penalties, because one of the reasons you want penalties in the game is so that you just don't have gruesome tackles in the box to give away free kicks, right? Because at that point, you have a perverse incentive. If I'm a defender, I'm a little unsure, I'll just drag the guy down there, and then we'll defend the free kick. So I understand the need for it, but the handball thing, I mean, I, I think Grealish's hand is in a weird position, I don't think he's intending to handle it. But to get a goal from that that level that levels a, a cup final doesn't make any sense. So for you, is it the entire penalty rule that needs to be revisited? Or is it mostly this handball rule, which has become, uh, I mean, in, totally inscrutable to, to most of us? Because I remember a game against, I think it was the Brentford home, uh, Bournemouth home game, I believe. Was it Bournemouth or Brentford? Bournemouth, right? where there were like five handball penalty shots and, and we didn't get any of them. Um, you know, I remember the one two seasons ago, I think it was Pepe tried to go around someone and he chips it and tries to go around the other side of them. And the guy just sort of knocks it down with his hand and there's no penalty. So I, you know, not to make this a, a woe is me Arsenal thing, because that's not the point. The point is, I, I just think both the jeopardy of a penalty and the handball rule right now are, are things that, that need to be worked at because for a referee to decide the outcome of a game most of the time based on that kind of rule, it can, cannot be what was intended by the laws of the game. Yeah, it's a weird one for me because so much of what refereeing and VAR is about these days is like trying to stay out of things. I mean, we've watched our players getting hacked down uh, for you know the, the first half and most of the second half before the referee seems to step in. Now, I'm sure that happens across other players and other teams, etc. This Again, this isn't a woe as me, but you see the amount of effort they put into not getting involved at times and the reluctance to get involved in 
goalkeepers time wasting and mm. then you come to penalties that should be the thing that they are the most reluctant to take a proactive stance on and handballs i mean come on you're in the box you're a defender you have arms the threshold for giving a handball a ball in the box should be really really high if the what ball- suarez did in the world cup is a penalty right yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a penalty <laughs> yeah if you're not clearly and consciously moving your arm towards a ball shouldn't be a penalty if the ball i'd almost say if the ball isn't heading towards uh towards goal maybe not directly on goal but isn't moving towards goal the threshold should be really really high you should be like throwing two hands at it and making a goalkeeping save if the like you see penalties given when the when the ball's going upfield away from the goal because it hits an attacker as it's coming out of the box i mean piss off what attacker ever puts their arm out to block a ball that's moving away from the goal he's attacking none but technically the referee decides and they're watching it on the var like so there's the there's that part of it. The, the threshold for a penalty should be really, really high. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are other kinds of penalties, people dangling a leg out. That one, uh, I, I'm kind of con- okay with how they referee that one. That's like we take the Silva ver- Bernardo Silva versus Xhaka penalty from, what, uh, a season ago where he did Xhaka in the box and – there's the dangle, he, you know, Xhaka sticks out a leg. Um, but was it a penalty? Like, I think that's really marginal, really harsh on the player. But I'm fine with that because in the spirit of the game, that City sticking it to us, an attacking move, Silva being really smart. Like, if that's the threshold, it's marginal, but I'm okay with that. So this isn't an Arsenal thing. The advantage attacker. But not yes. for a stupid fucking handball. I, I, Clive wants to say something, and no, I'd love to come back on it. No, 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 great point. I'll just agree with you, Paul. He's just agreeing with you. It's so rare, he didn't recognize it. He didn't re- <laughs> he's, like, he's like, Clive's making a gesture, his head is moving up and down. Do anybody yeah. know what this means? I don't, I don't get I it. I was confused. Give Elliot, give Clive a little more time, and then I'd like to come back in. Okay, okay but Because I think say- he wants to agree. He's n- still nodding, and I think yep. he wants to agree a little bit more. Okay, so so I'll set it up by just saying th- these two things because I think you touched on something important. You want defenders to feel a little bit less comfortable going in and attack and and challenging in the box because it favors attacking football, which is what we all want to see. Ultimately, though, for me, I look at it this way: What's the worst thing that happens if you don't call handball on on those kind of things? Nothing. The ball floats around in the box. Maybe it's a goal. Maybe it isn't. Probably wasn't going to be a goal anyway. What's the worst thing that happens if you call it handball and you give a penalty and it's marginal or it's wrong? You change the outcome of the game. The jeopardy versus the transgression just does not align at all, Clive. Yeah, um, 100%. In that World Cup final, in the, to make it 3-3, Kylian Mbappe took a shot, a bullet shot that was going on target and was charged down. And it was going on target, and it was charged down, body made bigger, and they gave a penalty. I can just about deal with that because that ball was going in the net. Do you see what mm. I mean? When you've got a, a foul, yeah. when everyone's decided that Jack Grealish is in an unnatural position, well, I want to see you jump up in the air, twisting the box in the in FA Cup final and tell me what's natural and unnatural. And it, it just grazes his mm. fingertips 
And that changes the course of a FA Cup final, a Manchester Derby FA Cup final, the second leg of a treble. I mean, that could have gone any way, you know? And that does not feel right. And there were some great suggestions from people saying maybe we should just make handball for the things that are on target, you know, for shots, things are on target. Some people are saying we should, you know, handball in a certain area, which is narrower than the, the full penalty box, for example. Some people said reduce the penalty box. Everyone with a thought process about the value of a penalty versus the whole value of the result and the game. How hard it is to score a goal. It's easier to con a referee for a penalty than it is to try to create a goal on occasions, it feels like. you know, And that's why you get the play acting in the sport. I'm being a bit journalistic here, but you know where I'm going, right? You've got people who are running in on goal and decide, actually, it's going to be hard for me to score. I might just fall over because that's a greater chance of scoring than me trying to score, running in with a goalkeeper running at me and the, and the defender hanging off my back, right? And if the game's gone there, then that's not right for me. You know, I want to see people earn their goals, as Paul alluded to with... Um, with um, Bernardo Silva and Chaka, they're trying to score, they're trying to beat us, they're trying to get past the last man. If we are clumsy enough to take him down, then we got to take our licks. Do you see what I mean? And that's 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 always been the sport. But this is the thing that drives me nuts. Like, you you guys want me to say something controversial? Here it is. I think that's a handball. I think it is a handball. His hand's in an unnatural position and the ball strikes it. By the laws of the game, I think it's a handball. But this is why we have human referees, not robot referees. He doesn't have to give it. And for VAR, after he, I think he's right. I think he did a good job. He doesn't give it. VAR makes him go look at it again. And once VAR does that, now he's got to apply a different level of scrutiny. And my attitude towards this is the common sense thing there is to say, you know what? Probably is handball. That's not a dangerous move. United have not attacked one lick in this whole game. They haven't even been in this game. Giving United a goal for that is just not a good outcome. And so to me, the, that is a great example of where it is handball by the laws of the game, in my view, and not giving it is the right choice. And that's why you have referees. You have referees so that they can look at the entire totality of a game in a situation and say, like, everybody in, who's ever watched sport understands what a makeup call is, right? We all know what a makeup call is. I called this one thing for the other team. Now I got to kind of even it up because that other one was borderline. I got to give a borderline one the other way. And it's that like a sense trap call. But for it's, referees. Like a it's like a trap call, you know, we're one game and then the call from the, no, we're not going to do that. So, so Paul, very, very final thought on this. But what I would say yeah. is I'm not for changing the size of the box. I'm not, for, all I'm for is referees using common sense and making it harder to give penalties. And handball is a great example where a referee can look at it and say, I know by the laws of the game, that's a penalty and I'm still not going to give it. No. And VAR Pulling that one back is is an example in my mind of a bad use of VAR, and I think some of the worst VAR usage is in handball calls. Paul, yeah. final, final thought on this. Yeah, I thought you were onto something there for a second. I thought you were going to make a really good point when you said changing the size of stuff. If they had changed the size of people's arms so they had little raptor arms. Yes, yeah, that, yes, thank you. Raptors. But that wasn't... Yeah. More, I, I think if you... No, not raptors, <laughs> T-Rex. Put a bunch of T-Rexes on the pitch, particularly against like Tottenham. Yeah. And, you know, see how it goes. I'm open yeah. to that. But my more serious point was, you know the way you go on and on and on and on about that thing about until uh, till our ears bleed with this point, one point you ever make about attacking football. 
Never heard of it. No, Mm-mm. no, uh, it's good. To one nil to the Arsenal, goal. baby. It's my favorite. Yeah, that huge insight you occasionally have about how it's a good thing to score a lot of goals rather than yes. less goals. I'm yes, not true. really sure where that, go- but like one of the advantages of being an attacking team that score goals is it's like you can at least go through the gears. I mean, there'll be games where you can't do this, but as an Arsenal, a team who attacks, scores a lot of goals. Now that we're in the 90-ish goals per season club, when something goes against you, you at least have the the capability to go through the gears and hopefully get things right. And I think I do think it's one kind of uh, perverse way in which uh, you can get a little justice in terms of penalties and get back in the game. The other t- team may decide they're a little more defensive, they sit back a little bit, and an arsenal and a city, etc., can rectify uh, a great, great injustice. Not every time. It doesn't get you off the hook every time, but it can. I think for the teams who can attack, who can score goals, um, they have an option that if you're a little further down the league uh, or if you're a less attacking team, a kind of, we'll try this, try and win this 1-0, it's a travesty. Um, I like that you gave us the 90-ish goals. You just kind of put us in that group. Yeah. <laughs> close enough. Kind of like I'm in the five foot nine club just because I own <laughs> cowboy boots. You know? <laughs> close enough. <laughs> you know? um, Clive, in a less hilarious manner, though, we see what sure, happens. That would be more like 6-2 if you were in the 90 goals club. I mean, aren't I you mean, like in, in the you want to give me credit for being six club. foot two? <laughs> be my guest. I could only get my hair so poofy. Um, Clive, the... Uh, the less funny part of this is is what happened in Budapest. And like th- this triggers a lot of difficult conversations that we don't need to get too deep into just about football culture and a culture of violence and entitlement and societal problems. Like when I see Anthony, and for those who aren't aware, Anthony Taylor made some calls, um, I guess against Roma. I don't know that any of them were particularly wrong. Like I honestly, I'm not too sure that he did a bad job in that game, but the Roma fans, Blamed him, I think, in large part thanks to Jose Mourinho being complete scumbag. Um, there were reports—I don't know if they're if they're apocryphal or not—of him um, attacking t- uh, Anthony Taylor in the car park um, yeah, verbally. Like, ver- yeah. Verbally, yeah. Uh, he went nuts on him, obviously in the ground, and as a result, Taylor and his family were attacked at the airport. Had to be shuffled off to safety. They had chairs thrown at them by "quote unquote" fans. There, there's so much in here to unpack, and we don't need to do the full unpacking. The thing I will say is I don't care what Jose Mourinho did. I think it's terrible, 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 terrible. And I absolutely think it sets the wrong precedent. It is still, violence is the responsibility of the violent individual. Now, I do believe incitement is a real thing, and incitement to violence is a real thing, and we should try to avoid it. But the slippery slope for me is when we take personal responsibility and accountability away from the individual. When we give them cover by saying, this is Mourinho's fault, or this is so-and-so's fault, or you know, if, if Mourinho hadn't acted that way, those people wouldn't have done that. And I, and I certainly think Mourinho deserves robust criticism for his behavior. I just always want to be careful that we don't provide cover for violent individuals by saying, actually, their violent behavior is someone else's fault for, for acting badly. So I'm very torn here because, Clive, the the culture of criticizing referees is abundant. It's often unfair. As Tim has pointed out, it's a difficult job and no one would ever do it perfectly. 
And yet, criticizing referees is fair game for me. They're part of the spectacle, they're part of the game, and referees get things wrong and criticizing them and needing their level to go up is part of it. The Premier League needs better referees. But clearly, the temperature getting to that level where a referee is attacked and his family is attacked at the airport is not acceptable. For me, the issue still lies with violent individuals and a creeping sense of violence and public violence in society, which we don't have to get into, but I'm curious how you tie this all together. The culture of criticizing referees, the way Mourinho behaved in the moment, and then the the way it expressed itself at the Budapest airport. Well, a lot there, mate. Um, Just a bit. Well, Mourinho, none of us are fans on this podcast, right? And people that are listening, I can't see many fans. So, no. so yeah. Oh, Paul, is he a fan? Please let me know. I mean, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> oh, well, don't don't sure, tar him right? with that so, brush. Um, so, and he, the way he treats referees is despicable to take the the, um, the the focus away from himself. He's done this before with a Swedish referee. I think his name yep. Anders Frisk, where he had to basically stop refereeing because he was getting death threats to his family. I think it was in a Chelsea Barcelona game. There were issues in that game. I I I come from a place where I've always, when I played football, the thing I always wanted the most was a referee to be there so there was a game to play. And so I've always appreciated referees. Without them, we have no game. right? And I ask myself the question, for anyone listening right now, I wonder how many of of you are saying to your young, your young children, your young boys and girls, I want you to be a referee. Because why would you want to be a referee? You don't get paid. You get criticized more than... You don't get paid to the same remuneration as some of the top players. You have to wait 10 years to get through the levels to get to up to, to being a top-level referee, to be able to get anywhere near the Premier League and the Championship in Europe. And when you get there, you get somebody who hasn't picked the right team, not quite as good as the team he just got beaten by, and then decides to make you the focus of everything publicly on film. Then you have to take your family out of there um, mm. by things being thrown at them, something they will never forget. And why? Can someone tell me why? The way we the way we separate referees from the game is wrong. They should be brought far more inside the game, far more inside, almost like an extended player, part of the game, much closer than being this separate entity that we just feel we can just throw things at when something doesn't go our way. I, I, the whole culture's wrong here, mate, to be honest. And um, I could go a million directions with it. First things first, they should be paid a lot more for what they do. There's so much money in the game, quote That's marks, for sure. Yeah. But not in their pockets, what they have to do. Now VAR's come on board. The whole structure around officialdom should be looked at because do you need ex-qualified referees or qualified... VAR is seen as like an extended career path now for referees. When you're too old to run around, please, Paul Tierney, can you get out of there? When you're too old to run around, you then go into the VAR room. What's that about? We have to have a complete new career structure around refereeing and how you manage a game of football. It needs to be looked at. Roles and responsibilities need to be looked at. And the referees that are at Andy Taylor's level, by the way, Andy Taylor is one of the top two referees along with Michael Oliver. No doubt about it. When Andy Taylor started his role as referee, I think there was something called the ghost goal. He gave a goal that went past the post. And I thought, he's going to be rubbish. He has so far improved over the years. He has improved massively, and they are clearly the top two referees. And I wish we could duplicate them. 
Because the others, some of the others, like Madley, oh my goodness, mm. the one we had at Newcastle, uh, terrible referee, terrible yeah. referee, and don't know how to manage a game. And and so we need to protect the better referees massively and get them to mentor other referees to, to lift the level and lift the quality and do not do what Jose tried to do, which is basically end his career again by making him the focus and allow opening him up to his fan base, which are very upset by losing European final. I could talk about this for a day. It's wrong. It's all wrong. The referees are human. They make mistakes. We've got to make sure we support them in a different way. We've got to make sure the laws are appropriate to the technology in the game to allow them to really be supported in a, in a better way. We have to pay them. We have to make sure that the pathway is clearer and easier so we have more high-quality referees with diverse backgrounds that can support a game which is accelerating way beyond a lot of their capabilities. Yeah. We're just not there at the moment. We're not looking at this correctly. Although I do think Howard Webb has got some smart ideas. What's his space on this? Uh, hopefully he'll get his hands around it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Anthony Taylor is one of the good ones. One of the really good ones in a Premier League refereeing group that is not very good. And this is the thing. When you sign up to do certain jobs, there are certain things that come with that career choice. When you sign up to be uh, a referee, you're part of the spectacle. You are signing up to be fair game for criticism. When you sign up to be a player, you're signing up to be cheered and booed. That comes with the territory. That comes with being a performer. You know, if you sign up... <clears throat> to be, you know, a, a an actor, an actress, actor, I guess just called actor now. Let's drag myself into the 21st century here. Um, you sign up to be an actor, your, your performances get evaluated, right? Someone might write a scathing review about you. But there is a line to what is part of that and what isn't. Now, you could say all the criticism of referees essentially builds up to this level, but I disagree, and I'll give you an example of, of why I disagree. What's happening with Vinicius Jr.? What's happening with Vinicius Jr. is a disgrace. But there are people in Spain who have tried to say his incitement of the fans has led to the racist epithets that have been hurled at him. Never, never, ever, ever the case. Because no matter how much someone taunts you and goads you, you have a responsibility not to be a racist and not to say racist shit, ever. That's your personal responsibility. And so if you want to boo Vinicius Jr., if you want to come up with funny songs about him, if you want to be clever in the way you respond to his taunts and his flamboyance on the pitch or whatever you view it as, totally fair game. There is no amount of incitement that entitles you to resort to racism. And that's how I feel. Not that I am analogizing throwing chairs and racism. They're two different things. But I analogize the sense of personal responsibility. There's no amount of a culture of criticizing referees or of Jose Mourinho even acting like an absolute clown that allows you to then go to an airport and throw chairs at a family. And I, you know, I'm sorry to, to get on a bit of a high horse there and moralize a little bit, but I just, I just feel that we have to, as individuals, always take responsibility for our behavior and have our behavior under our control. You know, I could go even further into the political. Uh, spectrum because we've seen some scenes in in my country in this country um you know politically related violence uh you know and the question of personal responsibility is one that i think is is rife in society right now so i i don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole paul but i also don't want to shut you out of it um 
So, yeah. it, look, it is clear that we may be overcritical of referees, and it is clear that we need to be thoughtful about how we engage in that criticism, and it is clear that they need to be better. It's okay to say that. And to me, the final most clear point is that none of it leads to a right to, to go out and violently assault a family in an airport. It's it's totally unacceptable. I agree with all of that. I agree with your strong emphasis on individual responsibility because, after all, that's all in many ways the vast majority of people have. This, their individual actions is what they control. But I want to come back to Jose Mourinho, and yeah, sure. I, I would not lightly let him off the hook for individual responsibilities. I know, I know that wasn't what you were saying. You were emphasizing yeah. the individual, but there is a he lights the touch paper, as they say. You know, oh, he knows what he's dealing with. I yep. mean, it, it's a bit like discussing individual responsibility, which I agree with. And the guy standing in front of the jail, in front of the mob saying, who's basically saying, I know we don't have a lot of information on these cattle rustlers, but let's all go out there as a mob and hang the bastards, right? Um, There's individual responsibility. And there's the fact that Jose Mourinho absolutely knows what he's doing to keep himself in with the Roma fans, to take the heat off him. He's done it a million times to stoke the embers uh, get the fires going, uh, make him look at least to his own mob like he's one of them. Um, here's a quick quiz for you, Elliot. I hope you know, don't know the answer to this because it's <laughs> okay. a doozy. How many red cards has Jose Mourinho's staff had this season? Five. Twelve. Twelve? Twelve. Now tell me that doesn't come from the top. They've yeah. been cult- doing it's a some- culture of disrespect. Yeah, for your fellow it, professionals. Yep. It's a culture of uh, fuck them. Basically, uh, we, we may lose, but we're going to burn the whole world around us, and that's basically what went on there. So yeah, the individuals who did that thing absolutely uh, uh, reprehensible behavior. Um, yeah. And then I'd like to say a quick thing on the on the refereeing th- thing, and this would be something I'd love to hear Clive talk about more because he will have seen it and I haven't. But is like there are no black referees in English football at any level that I've seen, or at least so few that I haven't noticed them. And mm. what that tells you is you don't get to the top level by being a great referee. Uh, you get to the top level by being willing to put go through that tunnel of extreme abuse you get in the lower leagues for no good reason, no good money, uh, no good explanation could you give yourself or your family as to why you would go through the abuse. All referees. So the guys who made it went through this abuse. But obviously some referees will have gone through another order of magnitude of abuse to get to the upper level, and they never do because it would never be worth it. One in a thousand make it up to the upper levels as referees. And so, I mean, Clive intimated to having ideas on refereeing. I mean, I don't know what the answer would be, but you kind of need a different structure, almost like an academy system in or around the, the Premier League and the Championship where you could develop a cadre of referees who don't have to come through the normal processes because otherwise the only people who could survive this is white dudes not because they won't get abused they will get abused they won't get racially abused (laughs) they won't get the same order 
and, yeah. and like these are un, uncultured thoughts based yeah. on very little information but it, it's to me it seems obvious that there needs to be a different structure that's about talent and not about who will absorb the most abuse and, and do that yeah. to themselves as a human being yeah I, it's weird right because football is not the only sport in the world I've, I've followed other sports there are referees in other sports it doesn't happen like this. And I think there's so many reasons it doesn't. First of all, you just don't have sports that are as low scoring and as intensely followed and as tribalistic as football, where the referee can, in many instances, have such an outsized With influence decision, on the outcome. Yeah. Right. But I think it's also the fact that the structures around the game don't do the referees any favor. Don't let them explain things. Don't, you know, don't let you in on the decision-making process. Don't clarify things in such a way that people can feel they understand what happened. So there's a lot that has to change. I don't want to stay on this. Yeah, I don't want to stay on this too much longer. Yeah, go for it. Sure. Because I think Paul touched on something with the Rome event, for sure. I think it was definitely 12 or 13 red cards, Paul, but there were 30 yellow cards to that same bench this Mm. season. So that tells you this is a tactic. Right. This is something that they're doing. And so I just came out, I came out with a little rule change the other day saying basically I said, we need to stop this. We need to protect the fourth official. We need to protect them, what's going on on the bench. Because now benches are bigger. We have more substitutes. We have more backroom staff. We've got like, we all saw this when Reese Nelson scored the winning goal. There were like 40 people on the pitch from Arsenal's bench. <laughs> I was just waiting for the chefs to come down from the Diamond Club to run onto the pitch. Do you know what I mean? So there With was, the knives. With the knives. <laughs> so we all know there's a big backroom. So that needs to be controlled. So I just came up with a suggestion saying, okay, if you get a yellow card on your bench, you, you can no longer have five subs. You, you can just use four subs. It's been taken away. Direct influence, mm. if you're from the coaching and your inability to control your bench, direct influence on the game by which you are playing in. You know what I mean? If you get a red card, you lose two substitutions. But I started thinking about the concept around controlling benches to make sure we get something that we all want to watch, not to what we watched last week in Budapest, because that wasn't a game. I could not wait for that to end, that game. Couldn't wait for it to end. It was just a terrible spectacle, and that's damaging to all the all of us and the game that we like. Because if you allow it to, other people will copycat that, and then we're not going to get what we all like to watch, which is a flow-based game of football with tactical nuance, exciting attacking play, defensive stability, all the things that we like. We won't get to see that because we'll be watching football almost like in downs in American football. You have a stop, and then we talk about it for 10 minutes, and then we have another bit of action. We talk about that for 10 minutes. Do you see what I mean? It's, and it's going no, that direction. So. I don't like that, and that's where we're heading towards. Yeah. I think we need a palate cleanser here, and nothing cleanses the palate like a beautifully shaved private's area. <laughs> Ugh. What have I done? What have... I done. Uh, Forgive me for my sins, but I think we needed that. I I do think we needed that. And uh, with Father's Day right around the corner, it's time to start thinking about shaving dad's privates. What is, why? (laughs) What's right? Why do they, it can't possibly be the thing you're thinking about. As a dad, I can say I'm thinking about shaving my own privates. Um, I'm, yeah. Oh boy. Um, Got any other ad rewinds? I'm rewinding the tape. We're going to start over. Okay.
uh-oh, Father's Day is right around the corner and you haven't gotten your dad anything yet. Don't worry. That's where our sponsors, Manscaped, come in. Oh, boy. Um, okay, so basically, uh, all of that aside, let's just be clear. At the core of all this nonsense is a really, really wonderful product that does something that we all do anyway, which is we do shave our body hair. And if, if you are someone who does that, whether it's your chest, your privates, right, here, there, anywhere, the Lawnmower 4.0 is absolutely the best way to do it. And, you know, I've been one of those people that's like, oh, I guess I should shave. And there's that razor that's in the shower and God knows it's been there for ages. Or you do it with a trimmer, like just out outside the shower, you put a towel down and, you know, it looks like a crime scene when you're done. It just don't need that. This wet, dry, skin safe technology. It's got a light so you can see exactly what you're doing. It sounds dumb, but high intensity light down there, really helpful. Um, shine a light on that special part of your body. <laughs> um, there's also the ear and nose hair trimmer called the Weed Whacker 2.0. There's deodorants, there's um, toners, there's all kinds of stuff to get you looking your best all over your body. And I think uh, everybody will say thank you this Father's Day when you get the uh, the suite of Manscaped products. And you can do that by going to manscaped.com and using code ArsenalVision for 20% off and free shipping. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code ArsenalVision. Don't forget that you came from your... Okay. (laughs) There's a line in this copy that I'm hesitant to read. But I want to read it so that you know someone wrote it. And and if I read it, then everyone's going to say, that's terrible. How could you have read it? But in the copy where it says required, it says, don't forget you came from your dad's, you know. And then it says, this year, show your original home some love with Manscaped. First of all, I did not come from there. I came from my mom's womb. I, they, they don't. This is clearly a misunderstanding of the whole birthing process, and I am not going to stand for it. But I will say they have phenomenal products, and you can save twenty percent off free shipping when you go to manscaped.com and use code Arsenal Vision. Now, before we move on, uh, I do want to tell you about a sponsor that I'm really excited to have here, and that is Oakley. Oakley sunglasses. I mean, you talk about an absolutely iconic brand. Uh, Oakley is it. I love these sunglasses, and I have a pair of them that I've been wearing the HSTN, uh, the HSTN really, really nice pair. I I like the the shape of the frames. I like the polarization on the lenses. You know, they're really about being all day wearable, but what I like about Oakley is the way they fit and the way they're constructed. Like if you're in an active environment, they stay on all day. They feel comfortable. They don't, you don't get that sort of pinching feeling and they have prism technology. Like the whole point of wearing sunglasses isn't just to see better in the sun and look cool. It's to protect your eyes and prism technology is really important polarization technology. You can go to oakley.com and read about it instead of hearing it from me. And while you're there, you can pick up a pair of sunglasses. Or a couple pairs of sunglasses, whatever you need. It's um, it is a brand that is all about quality and great looking sunglasses. You're gonna love it. Head over to Oakley.com. By the way, you know, Killian Mbappe wears Oakley, so like maybe you wear Oakley and you'll be as good as Killian Mbappe. Just a thought. Uh, so Oakley.com, head there now, get some sunglasses. Clive. Is that enough of that? Indeed. Paul Paul has somewhat terrifyingly raised the I have something to say little <laughs> hand thing on our recording environment. Paul, you have something to say? I, I do, presume yeah. about how children are birthed. I can only presume. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know me so well. Elliot, we have a lot of listeners who've complained about us in the past that they're driving around with their kids in the car mm-hmm. and that we've said things that they mm-hmm. should not have heard. And we have a responsibility to the young listeners out there. Given what you've just done to their sex ed, their understanding of where babies come from, okay. that you and I need to explain to the young people listening out there where babies come from. Maybe now, 
maybe mm. later, maybe on a Patreon indeed. Mm. But we need to put something out there that straightens out those young minds after what you I'm breaking just out did. in the hives. L- let's do this. <laughs> let's do a Patreon episode on how babies are made. Yep. Um, so if you really want to know that, you're going to have to sign it. That, that is behind the paywall. Behind the paywall. By the way, another thing that will be behind the paywall all summer long is not only our transfer scouting videos, which some of the best content I think we do. Uh, you can see the Rice and Caicedo ones now. Uh, we will also be doing player deep dives, summarizing the season our players had. Uh, I think that is something that you will really, really enjoy, and we hope to have you over there. And it lets us do things like, you know, fly over to Jordan and see the impact of the Arsenal Foundation at the Zattery Refugee Camp and put on live events around the world and travel to see you in in far-flung places. We're looking at Australia as a possible option, uh, LA and New York this summer. So a lot of stuff going on, and Patreon helps us do that and helps us do this, and we just love you so, so much. Uh, and I apologize for the ad read we have just completed. Although many people say, many people are saying they wish the ad reads were longer. So, uh, Clive, we need to talk transfers. That's another palate cleanser. Just saying palate cleanser now has given me flashbacks to the, the bad, the bad times we just shared. Um, the Caicedo transfer in particular is starting to take shape and there's some interesting goings on. So Chelsea are not going to get their primary target. He's going to Real Madrid and that has everyone thinking, well, now Brighton have Chelsea over a barrel. They're going to lose McAllister to Liverpool. They're going to want to cash in. Chelsea have a player they want. Talk us through the the permutations, the transfer scenarios that are taking shape as the dominoes start to not, if not fall, line up to fall. Yeah, this is where you get into speculation, but I love speculation and I've been on it all morning. So let's just tell you what I've read today that could be out of date by tomorrow morning. And that's what's so exciting. Um, so obviously, uh, Ugarte has gone to PSG. Uh, they've, they've beaten Chelsea on that. And I believe he was Chelsea's number one choice. We saw him play at the Emirates, actually, for sporting. Very tough tackling centre mid. I'm um, not sure what he's like in the ball, but he can definitely smash in the tackle. So, um He's going to PSG. So that means that Kaiseido, the, the, just defensive sort of four players that are out there at the moment are obviously Garte, you've got Kaiseido, you've got Rice, and you've got Lavia. Right? So Kaiseido's the next one up. Um, Arsenal bid for him 70 million in January. Again, there's little chatter that Arsenal upset Brighton a little bit in that in those negotiations. Brighton gave him an extension to his contract. Really, that was a pay rise because he was on very low money. I'm talking single digits, thousands yeah. a week. Um, so they've obviously upped his money. How will he make ends meet? <laughs> yeah. Um, they've obviously upped, upped his money to keep him in the building to say, look, come back to training and we'll put something in your contract which allows you to go in the summer. We don't know what that is. It isn't a release clause similar to what um, McAllister has got. That release clause could be quite low actually Liverpool could have got a bargain there it could be around the 45 million mark potentially again just what I'm reading on Twitter I'm not an expert on the actual numbers on a contract so with Caicedo hasn't got a release clause number but he has got some form of clause in there which could be we will let you go to a Champions League club for X number in the summer and guess what we are a Champions League club and Chelsea are not they're not even in the, in the, in the European League so that any European competition apologies so that's going to be interesting Wrinkle, there's a young player, 19-year-old left-footed centre-back playing on loan from Chelsea called Levi Colwell um, that Brighton have, that Brighton like a lot. He plays their progressive style of football out from the back. He is fantastic and he will be 
absolutely fantastic and he will play for England. I have no doubts about it. Brighton offered £30 million for him publicly last week. Publicly. He was rejected by Chelsea. Suddenly, Chelsea now switching to Caicedo's number one target. Potentially, based on what I read today. So he didn't take... Yeah, I haven't got to be a mathematician to work out what could happen there. If Chelsea wanted to push the button, and Brighton could literally take the mickey here yeah, when it comes to this money-wise. However, it comes down to the player. Does the player want to play in Europe or does the player want to fill up his fridge, right, with money and food and things like that for him himself and his family, which could, I couldn't, you know, you can't deny him, given his background and how he grew up, etc. He could look after his family and his family's family for, for many years to come. I'm sure Chelsea could outbid us if they want to, right? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. He was making a lot of noises about Arsenal in January and has done throughout, even recently as a Telegraph article about three, four weeks ago, where he reiterated the fact how close he came to Arsenal. Let's see how much he wants Arsenal and if Arsenal wants him because the priority, obviously, for Arsenal is Declan Rice, which after Wednesday's Europa Conference League final will take shape. So mm. here we are Monday, Elliot. This could all change by Thursday morning. Let's see where we land. Yeah, I think Rice happens, and I think it happens pretty quickly. That's my opinion. I mean, I think the Bayern stuff is nonsense, complete nonsense. Um, but, Paul, like, I really, really, really want Caicedo. I really like that player. And I think Rice and Caicedo, like, this is the hard thing. If we were chasing some bog-standard, bang-average champion, you know, like, the way it used to be, someone that was going to win the league with 87 or 88 points, or even 90, I think Rice might be enough. We're close already. But when you're chasing Manchester City, you, you just got to go and go again and go again. You have to be so strong. And especially with Champions League, you got to be even stronger. I think midfield is the area we have to worry about. We have Shaka leaving. We have Party and Jorginho now wrong side of 30. Party's had availability issues to begin with. Jorginho not getting any younger. Vieira looks pretty lightweight, maybe not ready. Sambi's not going to stay. There's really no natural next step. And so I think midfield needs two. I think it needs two elite players. And and the ages with Rice and Caicedo were perfect. The profiles are perfect. I think you want both. Chelsea could push this up near 100 million, and we're, we're not going to go there. Let's be honest. We're just, we saw, I mean, Mudrick, thank God we didn't get him. But there is no question we wanted him and thought we were getting him. And we saw that there is a level we will not go to for a player. And I think Chelsea can push the Caicedo move to that level if they indeed feel that he's the one they have to get. They're also, as much as it pains me to say it, probably going to get their coffers filled up by Real Madrid for Kai Havertz, which is bananas. Like, that's just crazy to me. And I I hate it for a number of reasons. One, because it's shitty to see Chelsea get money. But I also hate it because there's going to naturally be Arsenal fans that point to the fee they get for Kai Havertz as a way to, as a stick to beat our club with every time we don't get a huge fee for a player. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So do you think we can go toe-to-toe with Chelsea? And I mean, given there, there's rumors of a clause, and the clause may be a release clause to a club that has Champions League football. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do you see that dynamic playing out? Kaiseido, I don't want anybody else when I think about... Uh, I you are you are hooked. 
on the Divinals. <laughs> like to anyone who missed the Union, first of all, by the way, the Union Chapel event is up as a podcast on this very feed here, so you should listen to it. Uh, it is also up as a video on on Andrew's on our blog's uh, YouTube channel, uh, and the Divinals do make an appearance. Thanks to Paul. Uh, you can guess if I said to you, the concept of touching myself came up during the podcast. Who do you think brought it up? You wouldn't, you wouldn't need a lot of prodding, uh, to, to figure that out, but please go on about Kaiseido. Look, we have to about touching yourself. he will be like, it takes so long to get a really good song for a player. And we have one for him. It could be part of the deal that gets him to the club. Um, I think it's interesting rumor, uh, on the champions league thing. I'd like that quite a lot if the clause was he could only go to a Champions League club. I guess there's a logic to it from a Brighton standpoint in that it should put him at clubs who, A, can pay a lot of money, but B, um, clubs they won't theoretically likely have to compete with. It won't be clubs in Europa League 6, 7, 8, um, which I think is their... So there could be... That could be real. There could be something there that... Um, he can only go to a set number of clubs. Um, there's the part of me, maybe we've been doing this too long, that says there is no way Arsenal end up with Rice and Caicedo at the end of the summer. And if Caicedo going to Chelsea just makes it uh, a little more likely that Rice comes to us, maybe I can live with that. But maybe that's consolation thinking. Um, I ha- I agree with you both strongly that we need, assuming Xhaka leaves, uh, given that there may be some uncertainty whether Party is here next season or not, but even if he were, but certainly if he goes, it's a not it's a non-question at that point. If Party were to go, then you absolutely need two top-quality midfielders to step into this midfield. Um, and then there's the Odegaard side of things. I mean, he can't play every game. We got 50-ish games to play next season, assuming some kind of Champions League um, uh, run into the, the the final round stages. And a lot of players we're not entirely sure about. Uh, I mean, somebody will step up, but will it be Vieira? Will it be Smith-Rowe? Uh, might we bring in a really attacking winger and we start to see Saka being used in interesting spots in the attacking eight positions. He could ob- obviously step into the Odegaard role uh, with a little adjustment. He he could step into any role across the front line. Uh, bar maybe you wouldn't use him as a, as a striker or false nine, but you could do. Um, so we're pretty... We're pretty light in midfield, if you say. Well, we got Odegaard, but he needs some backup. And we've got a bunch of other guys who we kind of like, but nobody's really established themselves as the as a true backup to any of the the uh, the attacking eights or the 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 sixth spot. So we clearly need somebody who's Rice level, somebody who's Caicedo level. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know what to say though, because I mean, there's no way everybody else is going to let them us have a free run at those guys without the money going astronomical. And I, this is the yeah. Uh, and well, I think we'll be more aggressive than maybe we're we're feared of, if that's still a word in in the English language. Um, like we might surprise ourselves how much Arsenal is willing to pay for these guys, but still, at some point, Chelsea will just spunk the most ridiculous amount of money on. Kaiseido. Yeah. 
I mean, and, and if like Real Madrid really want a non-scoring striker, like have they thought about going in with a hundred million for Neil Mope uh, and getting the real, the the original guy instead of Kai Havertz? I mean, that's well, that's about ba- ba- Beghorst is leaving uh, is leaving United. <laughs> um, Clive, I like I said, I really want Caicedo, but I think this is the reality. We think that we're big spenders now, and we're going to be big spenders now. Maybe we are. There's still another level above that. And there are, there are the clubs that are going to start rattling the saber a little bit. PSG, Real Madrid have already started. Chelsea, obviously. Manchester City, you know, are they going to look around and, and say there's someone they want to go big for? Um, entirely possible. And, and so you have to be thoughtful about your targets. You have to pick elite players that can take us up a level that could get us to the title. But you got to get pick players you can get. You, you can't spend the whole window going toe to toe with a club that eventually is just going to say fine, a hundred million, and you're out. Um, you know when you look at the way Liverpool built their team, they did have a couple of big splashy signings in there, but a lot of really good additions that were just Premier League proven players at a price where they could get them and bring them in, and they didn't have to go toe to toe with Chelsea spending or City spending. Um, Rice is a huge, big-ticket item that we're going to be getting. I don't know that we are going to go to 80, 90, 100 toe-to-toe with Chelsea for Caicedo. So how do you think about the way we're going to have to navigate this environment where you have a few big spenders who seem like they will go to any price for any player regardless of whether it's tethered to reality and how we get what we need without spending the summer being roped into those kind of transfers? Yeah, we need to start leveraging the players and what they want to do said player needs to come out and say, I want to come to Arsenal. Right? That's what that's how Real Madrid do it. You know, and um and that's that's why I'm waiting to see what happens this week. You know, um I do think Rice is the player that I'd like to see come the most. But Kai Sado is very attractive. And again, he offers they both offer such flexibility in the back five or the front five, you know, and I think that's really, really key. They they cover a lot of things that I didn't like seeing last year. Ability to be more dynamic and be more dual-centric. I really like to see that. Their flexibility in the front end, they can both carry, they can both twist and turn. I just, I like their presence on a pitch. You know, that what they give you. They give you a level of assurance and stability. I, I really like these players. But the key thing for me is flexibility. And I, I, again, it's fearful teams to really learn from in the league. They're thinking smartly. I think we are one of them for sure. Brentford and Brighton and, and City are really thinking smartly. You think about how City started the season with, you know, basically Cancelo inverting off one side. And we all know that system because we're playing it now with a double pivot there and their 3 2 build up. They ended the season with Akanji playing left back, Carl Walker playing right back, with Diaz holding the centre back on his own. With Rodri just one in front of him and John Stones roaming around centre midfield. Mm, yeah. And you can do that when you have a player like John Stones, because he's really, really efficient in many different parts of the pitch. We have players like this building. You know, and I want to see more of these players come that allow us to mix up the configurations of our five plus five, three, two, two, three, two, two, six, whatever you want to call it. I'm not really interested because it all it will define itself based on your ability to be flexible and what any game requires. And I think our ability to manage the different styles within a game, on and off the ball, 
and work out far uh, sorry identify far more quickly the change in momentums of a game to ride those moments out and create momentums and accelerations on your behalf is what I think is going to be the difference edit to get the five to ten points we're going to need to win this thing. You know, mm. that's the key for me. So players like this are important. I don't want to get hung up on the names too much, although I am a little bit hung up on Bryce. Um, I don't want to get hung up on the names too much, but the type is exactly what we need. And I think that's the that's the most important thing. Yeah, I. It, it's. I think chasing City can break your brain because in terms of what you feel you need to do to be able to go beat City, you sort of feel like you need to create a super team because they've created a super team. But like, you can't always create a super team. And even if you do, it's not a guarantee of anything. Look at, look at PSG. You know, and by the way, they, they're spending this summer scares me a little bit because with Messi leaving, they may feel it's time to just go whole hog again. And, um, you know, that's a little PSG, there's a little rumor hit my iPad just now, mate, that they're looking at Nagelsmann as the manager. Yes, yeah, Nagelsmann arriving with Thierry Henry as his assistant. Mm. So that's an interesting. I love Thierry, there. but that that doesn't scare doesn't scare. Well, me. for in France, it cre- creates <laughs> yeah. a dynamic there, doesn't it? In yeah. France, yeah, he he walks on water. So, yeah, as he uh, should, as he should. And let's be honest, right? Their their recruitment strategy should be far more <laughs> in their own homeland. <laughs> you know, they yeah. should be looking at players in their homeland, and they they haven't really done that. So, um, let's see what happens there. Uh, just don't bid on Saliba, okay? That can we just can we just keep them away from Saliba? Um, Paul, one thing that that's struck up some debate is the uh, Kieran Tierney price and valuation. Mm. He's going to go to Newcastle. I think we know that. I think that seems pretty clear. The mooted fee right now is around thirty-five million. I got myself in hot water on social media by saying, "I think that sounds like what Kieran Tierney's value is." Uh, I will explain that in more detail for the people who have just started screaming at their listening devices. But do you have a sense? Of, I, I think there is, look, there's a presumption, and I understand it, that we should just fleece Newcastle. They got all that Saudi money. They should have to pay the Saudi money tax. Mm-hmm. It's not, yes. Like, the, the dumb thing about these conversations, like, yes, guys, we should 100% try to extract as much money from Newcastle as we can. But if the option is get 50 for him or don't sell him, I don't think that's a good place to be. We don't want to end this summer with Kieran Tierney at Arsenal. Not because we hate him, but because he's clearly not in our plans. We need that 35, 40 million plus the 100 grand a week to strengthen our team. Right? We need we need the resources. So while I agree we should get 50, we should get 70, we should shoot for 100. At some point we also do need to make sure we get a good sale over the line because it's an important part of our strategy to get better this summer so where should that fee land and how do you think about selling especially to a club like newcastle where there's a presumption that they can be fleeced for extra money but we don't know for sure that they're going to approach they're buying that way yeah i mean newcastle haven't seemed very stupid about football yet very stupid about money yet Mm. um there's a market of one club for kieran tierney that he's I mean, a lot of assumptions here, but I think we said earlier we're in the assumptions game here. Like, where is Kieran Tierney interested in going? Uh, Probably one club. Has to be near Scotland, has to be a little nearer his home. How many many teams up there need Kieran Tierney and will pay good money for him that he wants to go to? It's kind of a market of one club. Yeah, what did we get for Cesc Fabregas when he went to Barcelona, right? (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not so, his value. So, I mean, the one thing we had with Sesk was we didn't really, really didn't want to sell him. So that's well, that that's yeah, that's strengthening our you know what was it thirty thirty five million plus a buyback clause was us saying uh, we're really fucking pissed off and we're going to stick it to you if you're going to take our player. So we had some bit more leverage in this situation. Like the good thing is we'd probably be quite happy to keep Kieran Tierney for another season or two. So we got that on our side. But it's it's not like uh, it's not the Sesk Fabric gas situation. So we have some cards, but not huge cards. Kieran Tierney's a good guy. Um, he's not going to agitate to leave. Uh, agitate, but he is going to say to the club, "Look, you said you do right by me." He is going to say to Newcastle, "I'm very interested if you can go." It's going to be one of those middling deals. It just has that middling feel about it. Nobody's going to take an extreme position. Uh, there are other players in the world, and if we push the the monies up too much, they'll say, "Okay, well, for sixty million now, who can we look at for fullbacks?" Like we like Kieran Tierney, but there's a lot of fullbacks who want to come to Newcastle, and a lot of clubs who will sell them if the money's now fifty five, sixty million. They're trying to save some money. They, they got to work within FFP. They don't don't want to do anything crazy. They got infinite money to pump in, but they got to make the shell game look reasonable and that's the kinds of money. So I think you're right. 35, 40 million. We, sh- we can't really complain based on how he was used over the last season and how well he fits into our club. Um, they are not ripping Sesk Fabregas out of the heart of no. our midfield here. No. The, the issue here, I think is just that People really like Kieran Tierney, and people think that Newcastle have a lot of money, and those two things combined lean people to think that he should be fifty million. Then there's also people that will point to the Cucurella fee. By the way, do we say Cucurella or do we say Cucurella? What what are we going to say? Can we Cucurella. agree on how to say that? Cucurella. What language does he speak? I don't know. So then you have the Cucurella fee. Well, firstly, Cucurella was coming off over three thousand Premier League minutes for a very good Brighton, and they didn't want to sell him, and it was going to take a big fee to pry him loose. Right? It's that simple. It's that simple. Um, Kieran Tierney is coming off 800 minutes for Arsenal. Now you can say, but that's because his style doesn't fit. You'd be right. You'd be 100% right. But still 800 minutes. In his entire career, he's started 30 matches once, his whole career. Other than that, on average, he starts 25 or fewer matches a season. He has a huge fitness issue. He has not played much for us. We are ready to move him. That seems clear. He wants to move and has picked his club. All of these factors combine to make it less likely that he's going to make a huge fee. By the way, Cucurella was making next to nothing at Brighton. So you pay $50 million for him and you put him on eighty grand a week, whatever you want. Kieran Tierney's over hundred grand a week at Arsenal. So you're inheriting a big wage for a player with a fitness track record that's not ideal. He's not 22. You know, he's not 21. People point to Anthony Gordon. Anthony Gordon had played, had a 2,000-minute season at 19. These just aren't analogous transfers, you know? Kieran Tierney is 26. Happy birthday, Kieran. Um, it's his birthday today. I have that just sitting on my computer, Kieran Tierney's birthday. It's definitely not something Clive typed into the chat. So, I, I, I look, I will miss him as, as a player because I like him a lot. I, I don't think he's an elite fullback, but at, put it this way. If you, make, give, if, you, if you think he's a 50 million transfer, that makes him one of the three most expensive fullback transfers of all time. 
And I just think if the roles were reversed and we were trying to buy Newcastle's backup fullback coming off 800 minutes with a track record of injury on 100,000 plus a week, and they said 50 million to us, we would, we would have thoughts about that. To me, him going for roughly what Zinchenko went for feels fair. It feels fair. Now, fair's got nothing to do with it. I don't want the fair price. I want the extortion price, right? We should try to extort them, Clive. We should try. We should try to get 50. Of course we should. I'm simply saying that if what we wind up with is 100 grand in wages off the books and 35 million in our coffers, that's going to go a long way to helping us go where we need to go and not worry so much about what Newcastle's getting. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, I had a discussion with Andrew last week and um, I said 40, but I said, actually, I, I was going to say 35. So 35 to 40 is mm. what I was saying. This is where we can do something. Um, we can potentially say we want the money in one lump. Because that would be really useful, you know, because then you can extrapolate that on other, on other deals. That's what Celtic did to us. We had to pay them 25 in one lump. And I do believe there is a, a small sell-on clause in there as well. Right? So our position was not strong when we had to buy him. And so I, I think just move on because it's important that you look after a player's career, and he's not going to be first choice for us. He's not going to get the minutes. You, we saw the end of last season. We saw Kivior playing left back. You can see where the, the potential of that going forward could continue. If Tomiyasu comes in, it could, you get a bit more depth in that role because the construct of the team is changing at the back end, right? So, and so a charging up and down left back isn't what we're really after at the moment. You know, a couple of years ago, they were in vogue. We were playing wingbacks. They were very much in vogue two, two, three years ago. So we've just changed. We want standing defenders that play in the back five and in the back three, potentially, and um, they can move into midfield. And so that's just not him. And he should go and play and go and do what he needs to do elsewhere. And um, there's an athletic article this morning on Newcastle, what, what they need to do. You get those lovely depth charts they do. There's a big hole there. They need a starting left back in the depth chart, and he's perfect for them. He's been a bit homesick down south anyway. That puts him very close to his family in Scotland, not, you know, pretty close. Well, a lot closer than London anyway. So um, it just it gives him a better life balance. So I hope it works out for him because he's been great for us, absolutely great. And um, it's important that we have happy players around the group, and he has looked a little bit disconnected, shall we say. I have to admit, one of the things that I've changed about over the years in terms of my opinion, too, is I used to think, don't sell to rivals. I don't think that really matters as much anymore. I think you have to focus on what you bring in because you just don't know what your rival's going to be. Um, yeah, and we that, see more. It's changed now, mate, with the European yeah. market that no one's got any cash in Europe. And so yeah. Man City have told, they've sold to us rather than sell cheaply elsewhere. They're sold to us. And I think there's going to be a lot more inter-team movement. Like, we're creating our own market ecosystem in the Premier League. And it's good. we're going to see a lot more of this. Really good point. We're going to see a lot more players going to people, going to teams we really don't like. We've got to get Well, here, here's the funny thing. On 110 grand a week or whatever it is, there's maybe four clubs on the continent that have given up for them. You know what I mean? At, at, at a free, on a free. You know, it's like if what do you want? You want to sell them to Bayer Leverkusen? They can't. They can't afford them. You know, you want to sell them to Valencia? They can't afford them. 
I mean, it's you know, he'd become the highest paid player at 95% of the, the teams on the continent. So that's a good point too. You, you just have a smaller market. You want the money you need. You're going to have to sell to a rival. The other thing is, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, Newcastle buying Tierney could very well mean that when their season's at the sharp end, when it's critical, they're playing a backup fullback. I hate to say it, but it, you know, it's got to be in your head. They're playing Matt, Champions Matt League. Matt Target is that backup fullback. Though. Yeah. So, hey, we got to go to we got to go to St. James's Park in March, and they're playing Champions League, and they're playing Premier League, and and they got Matt Target. We're going to feel pretty good about that. And I don't know. I, you know, you just say, how do you feel facing someone? How do you feel? Bukayo Saka up against Kieran Tierney. I'll take that. You know, I mean, I think he's good. I think he's good, but you know, we don't we don't need to get too stuck in. Um, I just think it's the right transfer for for all involved. And at some point, here's the thing: Do we want to go till August 30th, holding out for 50 million, or do you want to get the money in the coffers and go spend it somewhere? I don't know. Tough call because people like the player, and I certainly understand that. Um, but got to get ruthless now. I want to do one last thing here, which is look back on our predictions. For the season, before the season. Just quickly review this because there's some interesting stuff here and people always ask us, if you go to the arsenalvisionpodcast.com website, an excellent website, I strongly recommend everyone go there. There are no ads on that website, by the way, um, which is a shame. We should fix that. Um, maybe, maybe we'll just have me reading Manscaped ads on that website. Um, no, but if you go there, you can go to stuff and you can go to season predictions. You can see this season's and last season's still up there and we'll put this new season's predictions up there when we do them. I want to start with the most important one, World Cup winner. World Cup winner. And I have no particular reason for bringing up these predictions. No particular reason. Except for the fact that when I look at it, it says Elliot's prediction, Argentina. Hmm. Argentina, what do you know? That's an uh, interesting prediction. Okay, no, I'm kidding. Um, all right, well, let, let's, let's go to a few of these that are interesting. Uh, here's one that I think is, it, well, let's just start. Final position, Clive and I had us third. Tim and Paul had us fourth. Scott had us fifth. Send the hate to at Scott J. Willis on Twitter. For points, Clive had the most at 78. I had second most at 76. Paul had 75. Scott, 72. Tim, 71. For goals, and we're going to discuss this in a minute. I'm just going get, to get a few of these out there. For goals scored, I had the most at 78. 76 for Clive. 75 for Scott. 73 for Paul. And 70 for Tim. We did pretty well on goals allowed. Uh, myself and Paul had 42. <clears throat> Clive and Scott, 40. Tim, 39. Tim, by the way, interestingly, had us on a plus 31 goal difference, but only 71 points. Sort of an interesting... He's very negative, that Tim, isn't he? I've always said so. Uh, our top scorer, we all had Gabriel Jesus across the board. Player of the season. Let's talk here. Did I have Gabriel Jesus? Yep, I we all had not. Jesus. You did? did I? I wrote wow. it down. Um, now, but for player of the season, uh, Scott had Martinelli. Paul, you had Jesus. Clive, you had Jesus. Tim had Odegaard, and I had Saka. When you look back on this now, if Jesus had stayed fit the whole season based on the way he started the season, the way he transformed us, do you think, do you think he was trending towards being that guy and we just got unlucky with a knee injury? That to me, I think, um, yeah. mate, at that moment in time, as he was flying through preseason, looking like the best centre forward in the world that we just discovered, because been given given his freedom to move, there was none of us. He was the most bought player in fantasy league last season. At the start of the season, he started so hot, 
Uh, it's just a different club, different surroundings, different workplace. And he was looking really, really good and, until he got the knee injury. And he, st- and he stepped back a little bit. And he still produced goals-wise, but it wasn't the same ferocious sharpness, shall we say, consistently, uh, but still produced. But, um, yeah, I think we we're unfortunate to lose him when we did. And I wish, he, it's a terrible thing to say, but I wish he'd like pulled a hamstring before he went to the World Cup because he wouldn't have gone. Yeah. And then um, he would, he, but that's only a little muscle injury rather than a meniscus 12-weeker, you know, which really draining on the rehab to come back, you know. So, um, and there are so rumors. I'm getting of, into the voodoo here. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, did he did he carry a little bit into that into the World Cup? You know, did he? You know, you can't really say. But it's a real shame. But um, yeah, I, I'm comfortable with that decision at that time. I, I, we we were so enthusiastic. Do you remember us waiting for the signing? Remember that? Remember the signing? The lead up to the signing. This was big to take a player out of Man City. It's just big, big stuff, and it really did improve our belief and. And he yeah, did change how we played. I mean, we we maintained to some degree that level after we lost him. But like him and Zinchenko, I mean, they bumped us up massively. And early in the season, we looked for him at every opportunity. By the time he came back, we found other ways of doing it that maybe we didn't lean on him quite as heavily. But mm-hmm. like, he basically broke and reset how we played. And we that was a momentum that we somehow mostly managed to carry on even when he was gone. So... Uh, in many ways, he's still a shout for most influential player of the season. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's a like I don't think it's a knowable outcome. I think Tim and I picking Odegaard and Saka's player of the season. Both those are the two I think that probably are in there. The one that I think should be in there, and I'll just say it: he's he's Tim's breakout player uh, that he predicted, and that's William Saliba. I thought about this last night, Paul. I think William Saliba is our player of the season. And I don't think it's close. And I'll explain why. Okay. This is what he did is absolutely mental. Like it's, it's, it, I don't, I don't know that there's an, any kind of analog for this. So William Saliba is a player that we just had out on loan in France, right? Doing his thing. He comes back to us, a 21 year old center back with zero premier league experience having been out on loan. He gets put into one of the most complex, difficult defensive systems you could ask a center back to play. Cover all the space in behind, pass the ball 90 plus times a game, never give it away, break lines, set us off and running, intercept when you can, run back when you can. He steps in and starts every single game. He is our leading passer. He keeps the best away defensive record in the league at 21 years old, now 22, and becomes, I believe, if not the best center back in Premier League football, he's in that conversation. Name one who's definitely better. Maybe you name one from City. I'm not sure who else you're picking. Maybe there's one that I'm not thinking of. Um, you know, Maybe someone at Newcastle or something. I don't know. They, they sit a little deeper, though. In terms of all-around game, William Saliba at 21 years old, which you think Saka's young? You think Martinelli's young? 21 for a center back is like 16 for a winger. 
And he comes from France and becomes the dominant center back in the dominant team in the Premier League, our leading passer, and the best defensive record in the league away. And oh, by the way, when he goes out with injury, we totally collapse. Paul, have you ever seen anybody come into the Premier League and be that good that quickly at that age, especially at that position? It is unprecedented. Well, I think it's especially at that position. I think you can probably find... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find a 21-year-old who was a phenom when he came in. Uh, Adnan Janazai. <laughs> Wherever he is. Where was, wasn't he uh, Real, Real Sociedad, Sociedad he, I think. Yeah, Real Sociedad. Uh, uh, I, do, I do enjoy going through the long list of United almost brilliant wingers who who had half a season and then disappear on you. I, I, I was firmly convinced Ryan Giggs was sucking their souls to fuel his continued existence <laughs> in the league. Uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely incredible what Saliba did. Uh, at He's that underappreciated, position. genuinely. Yeah, and we, we always do. I mean, it's just where your mind goes that defenders' jobs is not to screw up. And so if you're great as a defender, you, you're great at not screwing up. And th- that position has changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born at centre-back. Uh, we play the highest line in the league apart from City, and there's so little in it these days. And we have our two centre-backs. And, you, like, let's not leave out Gabriel Magliash in this conversation because the two of them struck up a absolutely phenomenal partnership as centre-backs. Um, he came in... Uh, in preseason and so impressed. I mean, you know, the old conversation, and we're about to hit preseason about, you know, how important is preseason? Well, pretty fucking important if you're William Saliba and Mikel Arteta, because in preseason he decided, you know what? Uh, screw all my plans from before. Uh, I found my center back pairing for the season. Uh, ben, Ben White, you know, when I signed you, we said things like, uh, and you can play other positions. Well, I'd like to you to try out at right full back because I know you can do it. And he was great there. And we changed everything because of preseason and William Saliba. And the, the rest is history almost. The, um, the ability to play for a big guy, I mean, he's a, big bruiser of a guy to play that high up the pitch to basically never get beat never get run to body anybody who came around him his dribbling skills his his i mean he almost goes into this calm zone when two three guys descend on him in the space and he'll you know he'll do that little spin dribble between the two of them Uh, he's got uh, clear space in the midfield and you go charging forward we've seen it multiple times I mean, he's absolutely phenomenal player. Um, we can only pray that his the physicalities, because that's the one thing I see with him. He's a very, very he- heavy body, especially for a twenty-one-year-old. And you know how he develops. You know, the positive side is he's going to fill out and get stronger and bigger. Uh, and maybe that's what this was all about this season. That was a lot of load, a lot of pressure on a guy who's 21 with a big frame and hopefully, I mean, Clive will know more about this, but hopefully <clears throat> rather than the first negative thoughts, which is, Oh, backs are always tricky. It's a very complex area. Maybe it's just the sign of a young guy growing into it. He like, he can absolutely be 
the best defender in the league, the best centre back in the league. We all saw it. Uh, there's not many players in the that the fans in the club and everybody outside the club c- will go a little quiet on thinking, yeah, he could actually become the best centre back in the league, and not in four years' time, but in next season, the season after that. He's he's unbelievable. He allows us to play in a way that we need to play in for Arteta's style. This was exactly what he was looking for, even if he wasn't always <clears throat> sure this was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's just amazing. And, uh, like, to be that good. That are, do, do you guys remember? I can't remember the game. He had, like, a dribble through midfield. He dribbled a couple guys, gets to the top of the box, and fires one. I think it hit the crossbar or just shaved the... Do you remember this? He did this, like, amazing dribble and then rifles one from the top of the box. And it was like... He, he just... He has so much skill. I, I don't want to overdo it here, but I think... You know, and, and he looked a little rough coming back from the World Cup. I remember that was a, that was a patchy period for him. He made it's not that he never made a mistake, but to be tw- twenty one years old, like I said, at sixteen for a center back, and he he just came in and he took the league by storm. And I think signing him is as important as anything we do this summer. Yeah. I, I really believe that to to be that good, Clive at twenty one at center back, and, and you say, well, style. You know, we need a ball playing center back. He can do that. Yeah, but we need someone pace because we play a high line. He's lightning quick. We need someone with physicality so we don't get bullied in the box. He's got that too. It, it, he's he's what you dream up a center back to be in the lab, you know? Yeah, but he didn't always have all of these things. Two years no. ago when I was studying him, I remember James went out to France to watch him play actually. And when a ball was chucked in the air at him, he was he was scared of it. What's that Duck thing under in it, yeah. there, right? So, um, he was also 19. And, <laughs> and funny enough, I did watch the FA Cup final on Saturday and because I was um, having a relaxing weekend, I decided to watch other games. <laughs> so, like, mm. I, I know the listeners probably laughing, right? But I think I'm a big believer in you. You have to feel football matches. When I was watching City versus United, there was a feeling about how they play physically right now, in particular, and how comfortable they are in in with their size and power, and particularly in the back line, and now with their centre forward. So I then went to watch a couple of Arsenal games and I watched the Fulham away game because I was so impressed with that game. And I watched the Spurs away game, just the first half of both games. And we played brilliant in those first halves. You know, we, we, we've we won you know, beautiful, beautiful football. Some of my happiest moments of last season. Shall I tell you what I looked at when I looked at the screen though? And I'm looking for things for next season, how to build and what to look for. There was a maturity that City have. And there's a youthful exuberance that we have. One of the things that we're, when we're looking in the transfer market and we're looking for growth and we're looking for things, just maturity of those three 22-year-olds, Martinelli, Saccharin and Saliba, just maturity, continued maturity of White and Gabriel, just the growth of young people. We've got the youngest team in the league. And when they settle and their body settle, they become mature and have stature. That's like, I don't, I can't find a stat sheet for it. Guys haven't got that sheet. You know, just that general maturity. Look at Jack Grealish when he was 22. And look at him now, 27. He's a physical beast. He's, he's so much stronger, so much bigger in his physicality. And when we're debating Smith Rowe at the moment, 
this is what he could be in in a couple of years. And having that patience, that developmental patience, just to allow maturity of body, maturity of presence at the highest moments in the game. That's where that's where we're behind, as well as a few positional stuff, the depth stuff, which we all do, right? That's and we have to wait for that. You know, we have to wait for it. But it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Because twenty-two year old Saliba is is can't be yet twenty-eight year old Van Dyke, but he certainly can be. And he will be. Yeah. And when he reaches that level, it's he'll be the best centre back in the world. We just have to be patient and make sure he doesn't break on along the way. <clears throat> Gotta hope the back heals. I mean, that's really it, right? Big men with back issues, that doesn't always work. Um it's a little scary. It's like the one, if you've got a big guy and you say, there's an injury I want that big guy to avoid, apart from like decapitation, you might say um, a back injury. Decapitation also very, very bad. Um, just one last so thing durable. I'll call out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just put the head back on. Uh, um, sports medicine has come on a long way over the last <laughs> decade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, disappointment of the season. I don't want to end on a downer, but I thought this was interesting. Um, other than Paul, all of these are pretty good choices. <laughs> now, to be fair, when we did this, we do a whole podcast, so we explain our pick. And I understand why Paul picked this. Um, he picked Ben White. That did not happen. Um, but <laughs> for why? Spoiler. Well, I think the uh, disappointment of the season. Um, oh, okay. But who would Scott underperform? Had, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think you probably were like T- Tomiyasu might get his place back at right back and suddenly white doesn't necessarily have a place. And I, I could see a path to it. Didn't happen. Um, I'm trying to be nice. Scott picked Vieira. I think you can make an argument. Clive picked Rob holding argument could be made. Tim picked Tierney late 800 minutes. Hard to argue. I picked Samby finished his season, not playing for crystal palace. So I think that qualifies three of those holding Tierney and Samby probably won't be at Arsenal next season. We'll see what happens with Vieira. We'll finish on a high, though. Breakout player. Um, Tim had Saliba. Enough said. Absolutely bang on. Scott gets the dunce's cap for this one. You're, you're off the hook, Paul. He picked Smith Rowe. Uh, a lovely suggestion didn't happen. Paul, who got absolutely ridiculed at the time and now looks like a genius, picked Granite Shaka, as he will tell us every single podcast. <laughs> and Clive and I picked Gabriel Martinelli. Um, yeah. I just think... Those are all pretty sound picks there and and players that you know can only go from strength to strength, I think, next season. So some interesting stuff. You can review it there over on the website. We've gone about an hour 40 already, so I think we should knock this one on the head. We're going to be doing our player deep dives over on Patreon. We'll get our scouting videos geared up. But again, Caicedo and Rice have both been scouted. You should check it out. I think they're both really interesting ones. Um, and we'll just see what shakes out after... West Ham are crowned European Conference champions. <laughs> we could get this rice signing teed up and get our summer underway. We'll leave it there. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Says pause. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thank Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Elliot Smith. You can find me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. We'll have news about the LA event coming soon. We love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal Ten transfer window. Now.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.